please uh, open your copies of the Bible, the Word of God, and turn to the Gospel of Luke, where we were last week. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to use one of the ones in the back of the pews. We'll be looking at Luke 15, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15, 11 through 32. Again, that's Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. I repeat that for people with my kind of brain who get sidetracked so easily. It's a lengthy uh, parable, the lengthiest as far as I can remember. So... Let's uh, pay sincere attention to God's word, and God, please help us to pay attention. Let's read it together. So, verse 11. And he said, this is Jesus speaking, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, 
Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Lord, uh, open our ears to hear your word. You have the power to do so, to open our hearts. Your son, Jesus, said he spoke in parables to separate those who are teachable from those who are not and make us teachable today so that we can use our understanding of this passage to love you and love others more than we love ourselves. Thank you for your word, Father. And uh, please, let the Spirit fill me and I am a weak vessel. Please use me and uh, use all of us to uh, learn about you and know you more. What we know not teach us and what we have not give us and what we are not make us. In the name of Christ, the parable giver, amen. My dad was a colonel in the Air Force, now retired. He's a pastor at Overland Hills, Overland Hills Church, for anyone who doesn't. That was the church that me and Davey came from. They sent us here. Uh, and he's a pastor over there, and so we're both pastors now, which is strange if you know anything about our past. Um, albeit he's far wiser, far more experienced, and far more Christ-like than I am, which is probably how it should be. But it is in his example that I have hope to be a well-rounded Christian man, a pastor one day, and of course, Davey and Mike. But it wasn't always like that with me and my dad. My dad, who is now one of my very few earthly heroes, used to be someone that I often avoided and dreaded to hear knocking on my bedroom door. I'll never forget on this side of eternity that one week in my teenage years, when my father told me that he bought tickets for me and him to go see a movie. And the days leading up to, to that made me feel uncomfortable and afraid and sick to my stomach. It's at this point, you know, hearing stories in the world that you, your brain is probably going to that place of, okay, so at this point he's going to say like his father was physically or emotionally abusive or something like that. That's why he feels this way. But he wasn't at all. (laughs) Uh, He wasn't anything like that. He loved Christ and sought to be like him my whole life. Uh, He became a believer before I was born. So sure, we had our differences and we still do. And amongst the countless sins I committed against my parents, yeah, he committed some against me too. But he was and is a father of love, righteousness, provision, correction, rebuke, truth, endurance, responsibility, wisdom, everything you could want from a father. So what was the problem? Why did I dislike my dad so much for so many years? Why didn't my dad grow to dislike me the way I disliked him? That's pretty normal, right? There are often a lot of questions we can form about the past when we consider the insurmountable elation of God's blessings in our lives, but in an attempt to be succinct about so complicated a situation. I think the best way to say it is just that I didn't love my dad the way he loved me. Probably the best way for me to say it. And that's what we'll be looking at today. 
Do you love your heavenly father the way he loves you or has loved you? Because that's what love is like in God's kingdom. And the parable can be broken down the best way that I can (laughs) into three characters. The younger son, the father, and the older son. And in the younger son, in all of these characters, we see so many truths. But in the younger son, we can see that humility is an unavoidable reality for lots of reasons, but it is unavoidable for all of us. In the Father, we could see that God's love and forgiveness are steadfast. They've been there all along, and they haven't changed. In the older son, we could see that righteous love is not transactional. That's not what the Father's love is like. So with the younger son, when we look at verses 11 and 12, Uh, we get an alarming, inciting incident to the parable. Um, The younger of the father's two sons says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Um, Now, I'm not even sure how well this kind of request would be received in a Midwestern family. Um, But in the face of the Jewish society's core values of Christ's time, this request was disgraceful. It was insolent. It was dishonoring. Um, He may as well have said to his father, hey, like, I don't care about you. I don't care about the part you play in my life. You may as well be dead to me. Give me my inheritance. I'm good. I'm out of here. And that is how horrid the request would have been in the Jewish culture, you know, when they're listening to this parable, um, when Christ is speaking it. Jesus said of this kind of talk in Matthew 12, 34, he said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in Matthew 15, 10 through 11, he said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And this, this verse really hit me hard. Proverbs eighteen twenty one says, Death and life are in, the, are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. So you see, when this son said this, this young son thought, I think he thought he was speaking toward life, but soon found that he was speaking toward death. And so it was that this evil red flag of a request reveals to us, to the listeners then and to us now, the relationship between this son and his father. The son had a disdain for his father that had grown over time. As my mother likes to say, your walk walks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. (laughs) And this younger son, he revealed his walk through his talk and his father mercifully listened to him. Tragically, at the end of verse 12, we see that he divided his property between them. And at a quick glance, one could think, okay, so, He took his inheritance and left. That seems pretty normal in American culture. Maybe not the greatest, but it's pretty normal. Sure, it may seem that way, but it certainly wasn't normal in that context, in the Jewish context. And the meaning behind this illustration reveals a dark, universal atrocity of man. That man, that man would look upon a loving Holy Father and his blessings and try to be God themselves. 
This younger son's inheritance is useless without his father. It is meant to be enjoyed and creatively stewarded within the scope of a beautiful relationship of adoration and honor and respect with his father. Ripping the inheritance away from the source, ripping it away isn't wise and it's not independent to the way that culture might make it sound. It is foolish, it's haughty, it's repudiating, it's an echo of the fall in the Garden of Eden. A direct and connected echo of the greatest and darkest conflict in all of history. So like a sinner in the dark, fleeing from the righteous light of God, the younger son gets out from under the loving gaze of his father to inevitably squander his property and reckless living far away. Dark deeds like to be carried out in dark places. This confirms what Jesus taught earlier during his first tour of Galilee, his Sermon on the Mount, as we call it. There are two ways, the narrow, righteous way that leads to life and the wide, sinful way that leads to destruction. That's what this parable is showing. The younger son wasn't going to break from his father and then make something of himself there. In separating himself from his father, he chose the reckless way a different direction than his father. Now, in the Jewish culture, they would still provide food for the poor, as we can see like in the Old Testament law, and we see it practice in Ruth. Um, they would leave the edges of the fields unharvested, as well as the crops that they had dropped or missed. But this was a far country. This isn't Kansas. Um, and in that country, there was a severe famine. This is the way a reckless life with a reckless heart goes. A reckless heart is never prepared for the sin-filled call and response with a dark world. Where they think they're going to give in to the world and get something back. They're never prepared for just how awful that's going to be. And where the hard path is a constant gain in Christ, that's the hard path, the narrow path a promised growing sanctification, the easy path is a constant loss, a promised decaying depreciation. And as verse 14 says, this prodigal son began to be in need. Uh, you see, because everyone needs what God the Father has. Whether they dislike him or not, they need it. Um, everyone needs provision. Everyone needs love. They need comfort and care. They need life and stability. And it is in this moment of need that the prodigal son, like every person, has to make a choice. Do I keep trying to make this work on my own or do I surrender? This may sound very familiar to a thought that comes into your mind every day. Um, do I surrender, accept my failure, and go try to have a relationship with the loving authority that I rejected. As the distinction begs the question uh, in 1 John 3.10, will I be a child of God or a child of the devil? Well, like every sinner does, the prodigal son decided to delve even deeper into his own way of doing things. Um, he went and got a job with a pig farmer. As verses 15 and 16 say, 
He was barely scraping by. He was starving to the point of desire for the very feed the pigs were eating. These chewers of the cud. Pigs being animals at the time that the Jewish nation considered the lowest of the low. This parable comes before Peter's vision in Acts 10 when God assured Peter that he had made common or unclean animals clean. Because in the Old Testament law, pigs, they were unclean animals that shouldn't be eaten by God's people in the Jewish nation. So there's quite an emphasis here in the story, in the, the storytelling of the parable that Jesus is giving. It's genius. There's an emphasis here of just how horrendous the life and the desires and the circumstances of the prodigal son had become. Uh, an emphasis that should sound familiar in a lot of our pasts. It's one thing to face misfortune, but it's another thing to face it within a sin-fueled, death-doomed, loveless life, separated from the source of righteous love. It brought him to this moment, wishing to eat these pods that wouldn't even nourish him in any healthy way. It's not the kind of food that it was. That's the way it was for all of us believers. The veil was lifted. We saw what the world had to offer us when our souls were starving, saw how it didn't satisfy, how it just wasn't right. Um, it wasn't what we were made to enjoy, the cares of the world. And I love how verse 17 starts. It starts with just, but when he came to himself, but when he came to himself, the montage of life experiences and examples that come to mind just in those words, but when he came to himself. Here, Christ is masterfully illustrating the truth he taught on his first tour of Galilee. In Matthew 5, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here at the bottom, in the dark dungeons of sinful, reckless living, in the anxious, despairing, and hopeless reality of spiritual bankruptcy, God brings something special to all believers. Understanding. Not just the logical understanding we see in verse 17, when he says, my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here, the long, I perish here with hunger. Not just that logical understanding. A logical understanding and philosophical understanding, they can get you really far. They can peel back a lot of layers of the onion of existence, but they aren't enough to get you out of death and into life. No, there's something deeper. There's something that comes down to the individual, something that is very, very special between you alone and God, so intentional that it can't truly be generalized. God looked to that prodigal son and he gave him a spiritual understanding. Like we said earlier in that verse in Proverbs, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And this is where the story really takes the biggest turn, I think. I mean, I would love to discuss this with you for the rest of eternity. <laughs> we could all talk about that. But this turn is so moving. It's at this moment in verses 18 and 19 that we hear the son say words that aren't of death. We hear him say words that are of life. He says, 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Doesn't even ask. It's just, this is the truth. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is it. This is, this is a change of heart. The spark and the kindling, the first seed leaves, the first breaths after a coma, the first precious, that a lot of you experienced, have experienced the first precious baby steps of a renewed mind. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I've been personally praying myself for humility more than ever in my life since I became a pastor here. And this position in the church, along with my first year of marriage, has revealed a pride problem in me that is far deeper than I thought it was. The reality is that humility comes for us all. It's coming for us all. And humility is this unavoidable reality. Every person in history will be humbled by God. For God's children, it will be like it was with this parable of the prodigal son, with this poor in spirit, this mourning, and this meek understanding of their position before God. But for the children of the devil, as First John says, the reckless life, it will continue. It will not take this turn in the story. It will continue until it meets its destructive doom, only to bend at the knee when it's too late and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every hearer or reader of this parable for all of history, for all of time, will come to face the unavoidable reality of humility. None of us loved God the way he loved us. We sinned against him. None of us loved him like he loved us, loving us to the point of sending his son that, as we read earlier, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we have to ask ourselves, has humility become our reality? Is that how it feels each day? Do we understand what we've done? Do we understand our position before God? Or in the reality of our forgiven sin as Christians with how great things are in God's blessing, have we forgotten how we got here? We, we can't forget that. Uh, may this prodigal son be a reminder to all of us, um, all of us Christians, and a realization to all non-believers, to all non-Christians, that we all come from humble beginnings, sinful beginnings. And that humility never stops when we uplift Christ in our lives, where he must increase, we must decrease. So now we're introduced to the Father. In verse 20, we are properly introduced to the hero of this story. And the loving Father, which, of course, it, it illustrates Yahweh, it illustrates God and all of his steadfast love and his forgiveness. After the prodigal had this realization, um, in verse 20 and 21, um, it shows us that the son got up 
and went back to his father. He did it. He didn't just say it. He actually did it. And uh, it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It seems clear by a lot of study, uh, people who've studied this, that the father had been patiently waiting for his son. Um, Regardless of the hate and the evil that the son had shown his father um, through his request and for leaving and squandering it all, the father, eager with joy, zealous with joy, he doesn't stand and wait, he doesn't walk, he doesn't send first servant to greet his son. He feels compassion for his son and runs uh, to be united with his son, physically holding his son in his arms and showing affection for him. I mean, we hear, we hear earthly stories that kind of scrape at this, you know, the dog Hachiko waiting for the train, waiting at the train station for his owner for nine years. It's a beautiful story. Um, Odysseus finally making it home to his family. Beautiful, timeless, seemingly story. Or the the lyrics, uh, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough. I mean, I think you can feel it even when I say that. When I say those examples, it pales in comparison. Feels almost embarrassing to even use those examples because it's not as good. This is the story here. This is the one. This is the story of the compassionate and loving father running with joy to embrace and kiss the repentant son. It's the best story of the best. It's the transcendent of the transcendent. It's the love of loves. The lost is found and he's wrapped in love. The son. Uh, sticks to his words of life and tells his father what he committed to telling him, that he had sinned against heaven and before his father and personally believed that he was no longer, personally believed, really believed, that he was no longer worthy to be called his son. And verse 22 says, another turning point, but the father. Um, And this is a phrase that alludes to the phrase, but God, uh, that we see in scripture over 40 times. Example given, one of the best examples I could think of. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of what the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. And this is what the parable illustrates. But the father, 
forgives his son, calls his servants to clothe his son with a robe that would have been reserved for the guest of honor, a ring that would have been reserved for someone in authority, and shoes that would have been reserved for a son, not a servant. He called for a meal that would only be reserved for a special occasion, a truly great celebration. And there he says the words, he says the words that reveal the timeless truth behind the parable when he says, and this is the part of the parable when I think the Jewish listeners hear this part, they're like, whoa, like I was tracking, but what's that? Like I was already struggling with the father running to get his son. That's weird. And now he's going to say this. He says, let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they did what he said. They began to celebrate. Just like Christ said earlier in, chap- or, uh, earlier in the chapter in Luke 15, uh, verse 7, he said to the Pharisees, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The love of the Father is the core of the story. It's the core of, uh, that's kind of a, a sentence that can just kind of emit outward to everything. <laughs> the love of the Father is the core of the story. Um, he is the hero of the story, uh, without a doubt. And you can, you can measure the prodigal's misunderstanding of love. Um, you, you got the prodigal, he has a misunderstanding of the Father's love. And the older son, which we'll talk about in a second, he is a misunderstanding of the father's love. Um, and uh, you can see this stark contrast on both sides that is just hate and love, death and life. And uh, the father's love, it's, it's steadfast and it's immovable. It's a picture of the parable giver himself, Jesus Christ. And this is really important. You see, at, at the beginning of Hebrews 1, it says something very, very important. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then it says this of Jesus, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So when Jesus spoke the parable of the prodigal son at this point, when he's speaking it on a second tour of Galilee, he had not yet died. He had not yet rose from the dead. And he had not yet made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of God, interceding for us and saving a space for us right next to him. But right now, this is where the story's timeless. But right now, this morning, with all of us at this moment, these things have happened. They've already taken place. Praise God for that. So when we picture, when we picture the father running to embrace and embrace the son. You have this parable. You have this illustration that has this beautiful culmination in this father running to the son and it's illustrating something. So when we picture that we see, we can see Christ 
humbling himself to be born and live as a man. You see the father, he's just running, right? We can see Christ being baptized and starving in the wilderness before his victory against Satan's temptations. We can see him giving up his body to teaching, to rebuking, to healing the sick, performing miracles, reasoning with people who were rejecting him, even sweating as he, the God-man, did daily labor. We can see him being kissed on the cheek by the betrayer, being unjustly arrested and beaten, and like the fattened calf, being killed as he obeyed the Father in the greatest act of love we will ever know. That's what I could see. I hope that's what you could see when you see that father running to his son. Jesus came to us. He ran to us. He humbled himself and came to this place, Emmanuel, God with us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it is in Christ that we see by God's perfect design the love of the Father fully realized. Those who would look at this world and seek to gain everything while losing their soul can seek Christ instead. Correct course and gain the love of the Father. A relationship in the presence of God, both now and the Holy Spirit, can be enjoyed and then at the throne praising him forever. So when you picture that father running to his repentant son, remember how God responded to the fall of man. He walked into the Garden of Eden looking for man. He knew where he was, but he allowed the story to play out for our benefit. He walked into the garden. And then when he found him and they went back and forth with what happened, the fall, the sin, he made a promise that a savior would come. It's all part of it. It's all part of that illustration. He made a promise that a savior would come and he has clothed us Christians with his righteousness, with Christ's righteousness. He has given us the ability to stand firm in the gospel of peace. And he will, as it says in Revelation 3, in the letter to the church in Laodicea, he will come and eat with those who would be zealous and repent and grant them the honor to sit with him on his throne. So it is in Christ that we see true love. Love that has within itself true mercy and true forgiveness. A righteous love that keeps no record of wrongs and that brings us to the file. That brings us, you know, realizing that this righteous love keeps no record of wrongs, that brings us to the final character, the older son. And uh, this older son, as it uh, continues in the story, has a misunderstanding of uh, the father's love, just like the younger, the younger son had. Um, just one moment here, sorry. In verses 25 through 27, 
Thank you, Lord, for fixing this device. <laughs> Thank you for the mercy. Uh, in verses 25 through 27, um, uh, we see the older son find out about this celebration for his brother. And even more so, he finds out the way that his father has responded to the return of his younger brother. Um, it is here that we see another contrast with the father's love because the older son doesn't respond like his father at all, um, which may seem sound familiar to all of us. Um, he, also, he also seems to not understand his father the way that he should, like the younger brother didn't understand his father. Uh, verse 28 says that he was angry and refused to go in. He refused to go into the celebration. And this embodies the pride and the legalism of the religious leaders in Christ's context, the Pharisees and scribes that he was talking to, that earlier in Luke 15, 2, then grumbled and said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Ugh, sinners and tax collectors. What a joke. And they saw these sinners and tax collectors as lesser than themselves. They believed themselves to be righteous in no need of new minds and new hearts and repentance toward God. And this is why after the father lovingly came out to invite the older son to join in the celebration, the older son said in verse 29, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat even, a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So here, we've already had two huge turns, and here we have a final twist to the story. We see that the older son who never left the, he never left like the younger son did. He also has a heart issue. He has a misunderstanding of true righteous love. He can't believe this display of love from the father. It's preposterous to him just like it's been preposterous to me at times. So now out of the heart, he speaks these words of death, showing that he demanded his father's love and blessing because of his own deeds, because of his own doing, because of who he was. He believed love to be a transaction. This is something that all of us, I think, are constantly trying to stop doing. <laughs> is to see God as a transaction. If I go to church, I am fine. If I do this, if I do that. Um, if I live this righteous life and something bad happens to me, what is the meaning of this? Like, that's not the way that it works. It's God's story and you're inside of it and it's telling of the love of God. Um, he believed love to be transactional, but he failed to see that righteous love is merciful and forgiving that loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't come with any exceptions. It doesn't come with any clauses. He says angrily in verse 30, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So the masterfully, it's masterfully crafted. The irony of Christ displaying the Pharisees who would themselves kill him to fulfill his loving plan. He displays the Pharisees as angry that the fattened calf was killed for loving celebration. It's flawless. 
but it's also convicting. Like Davey mentioned last week, when he was uh, preaching on the Gospel of Luke as a whole, every one of us, and I'm paraphrasing, so I apologize, but every one of us, at the very least, has some kind of sin that we are disgusted by and think to ourselves, I would never do that. How could someone do something like that? And every one of us has the temptation to point the finger at someone other than ourselves, to point at specks in each other's eyes when we have a log in our own eye. And with the younger son, with the younger son, it said, but he came to himself, there was a turn. And uh, with the father, there was a turn, it said, but the father said to his servants, he killed the fattened calf, he said, let's celebrate. And here, the but here that we see for the older son is, but you did this when he came back. It's, there's no turn. The younger son made a humble choice that was contrary to the way he had been going. The father made a loving choice that was contrary to what the culture would have expected of him. Whereas the older son, he chose to continue his own way and criticize the ways that were contrary of his brother and his father. We have to be very careful not to distort and manipulate the love of God that he has taught us in his son. We've all been given this thing that we're supposed to handle. It's love. It's this thing you hear about all the time in the world, constantly. All you need is love. All the time. And the love that they're talking about isn't even the fully realized version of it. And God's put it in your hands. It's incredible, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank the Lord for that. I don't want to do it myself. You're supposed to handle this. And you have sinful inclinations. So it can be so easy to be like, this is really powerful. This is maybe the most powerful thing that's ever existed. I could use it a little bit for myself. It's a slippery slope. It's really bad. And in this case, it's not a slippery slope at all. It's just a fully, full misunderstanding from the beginning. He never fully understood the love of the Father. Some will refuse this love altogether. They'll say, I don't believe in that. And like the prodigal at the beginning of the story, they'll just refuse it and they'll leave. But some will take God's love or some version of God's love and try to shape it in a way that continues to fuel themselves, to fuel their own pride, their own control, their own understanding. And it is in that way that they are no better than when the prodigal son was looking at those pig feed pods and he had no one giving him anything. It's no different. It's just as bad. And practicing this kind of understanding about love that the older son had, this is like the younger son was before. It's, it's just being lost. And that is why this parable ends on such a bombshell in the context it was shared. Christ painted <laughs> this beautiful illustration of the reality of depravity and the coming to repentance and being met with mercy and love and acceptance and affection and then celebration. And then right here at the end, he revealed how the Pharisees and scribes were standing on the outside of the entire story, the outside of the celebration. All of that beautiful story, and then it ends with just this ugly character you don't even like, and someone that you've been many times, that I've certainly been many times, so I know you've been.
Um, in verse 31, it illustrates how these self-righteous leaders, they had access to God's word. They were supposed to be like Christ when he talked to Nicodemus. You're a teacher of God's word. The, right? Like, why don't you get this? He says, uh, verse 31, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. They may have had access to God's word and they may have been standing in the position of religious leaders. But as we know, they were not putting it into practice correctly. And the perfect illustration of that is this older son. And it is a warning for all of us. The same goes for any of us. There are those who believe they are saved, but are actually self-righteous and have yet to taste the fattened calf and celebrate being found. They're there like, I never got to have this. Why haven't you done this for me? It's not the father's fault. The father has shown you the way to be. You have to get there through the son. And there are also those who have been found but struggle from time to time, like I do as well, especially in this cultural climate. Struggle from time to time with loving others in ungodly ways, seeing people as lesser than ourselves. And we need to be reminded that righteous love is not like that. That's not the kingdom. That's not light. That's not salt. There's no transaction here. It's just unconditional and it just never ends. But we're learning. Praise God for that. Either way, God has made it clear that the steadfast love of the Father is the way we should love everyone. Any other version of love is counterfeit and it will be exposed. So in closing, we've seen the reckless younger son brought to realization and repentance We've seen the steadfast love and forgiveness of the father, and we've seen the faulty transactional love that the older son was trying to uphold as the true standard. But the core of the story, again, just to let it really sink in, the core of the story is the loving father who resembles the real-life example in Jesus Christ. That core is contrasted with those that would reject the love of God altogether and those that would manipulate the love of God to their own standard. And in the core example of Christ, we see the object of our faith. We see the original love. When I say original, I mean original, original love that was there long before our world was ever made. And in our sin and our failure has only shown to be even more wondrous, even more awe-inspiring, to be even more bright in this world of darkness. So as Christians, we must hold fast to humility. I encourage you to do so. This week is a great opportunity. It's another week. Hold fast to humility. Remember how you got here and stay that way. Hold fast to the love and forgiveness of our Father. Nothing else is better. It is what feeds in his word and in each of us together and in prayer, all the things he's given us to enjoy his love. And also hold fast to the unconditional example of that love that we have been given through the God-man, Jesus Christ. That is how instead of being lost or being angry, we can celebrate what God has done through his son to seek and save the lost. May all of us here come to love God and love others the way 
he has loved us through his son.